and I'm here with you today for a special event uh, that we co-organized together with OTJR and the Foundation for Law, Justice and Society. Now, as you can tell from the uh, marvelous setting and, and the amount of people in the room, this is a very special event uh, under many respects. Uh, first of all, as I mentioned, we are not doing this alone, we are doing this with the, the uh, Foundation, and Professor Dennis Galligan has kindly accepted to introduce the discussion today, will uh, give a, a few words about the Foundation in a few minutes. Um, as far as OTGR is concerned, as you, as you may know, we are an interdisciplinary group based at the Center for Criminology. We have the largest network of academics, students, and researchers on issues of transition from, uh, and society recovering from um, uh, conflict and despotic rule. Um, we organize, among many other events, we organize a weekly seminar series that runs each Wednesday uh, during term time. I invite you to have a look at our website, uh, law.ox.ac.uk slash OTJR for the complete calendar of our events and for, um, for our mailing list that you can sign up to and receive all the updates. But now, without further ado, let's move on to the reason why we are all here today. And uh, as, you, as you know, we have the privilege of having with us an exceptional number of extraordinary guests today. So uh, my main dilemma in introducing them is really not so much what to say about them, but what to leave out, because unless we spend the entire afternoon describing and listing their achievements, uh, there is no way to be comprehensive. So I will try in a few minutes to, to do justice to them. Um, starting from our main guest, uh, now we have uh, Philip Sands today, we have the privilege of having Philip Sands today with us, who is no overstatement to say is one of the most uh, well-known international lawyers active today. So, um, as you know, Philip Sands is a barrister at Matrix Chamber and professor of laws and the director of the Centre of International Courts and Tribunals at University College London. As a practicing barrister, he has extensive experience litigating cases before a huge number of international courts and tribunals, including the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court. He is, uh, po has been appointed uh, to the list of arbitrators maintained by ICSID and the PCA. Now, Professor Sands is also a very prolific writer, uh, having authored I think more than 16, I lost count when I was looking at them, 16 books on international law. Now author and, and, and co-edited many books for specialists, including, and this will sound familiar to many of you, Bowett's Law of International Institution, Justice for Crimes Against Humanity, and from Nuremberg to The Hague, The Future of International Criminal Justice. But probably the defining feature of Philip Sands is that he's also the author of many bestsellers among the general public. And uh, among the previous works, we can, it's worth mentioning Lawless Words, America and the Making of and Breaking of Global Rules, uh, which started a whole debate, especially in the aftermath of the, of the war in Iraq here. Now, Professor Sands, as you know, is here today to, to talk about his new book, uh, East West Street, on the, on the Origins of Genocide and Crimes Against Humanity, uh, published by Alfred Knopf and Widenfield. Now, as you probably are aware, East West Street already won the 2016 uh, Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction and has been shortlisted in a number of, uh, of various other competitions 
and for a good reason, if I may add. Uh, but much will be said about this book today, so there is no need to indulge in this at the moment. Uh, Philip will speak, we present his book for about 20 to 30 minutes, and then we have the pleasure of, of having joining the discussion today uh, Professor Dapo Akande and Dr. Stephen Humphreys. Now, Professor Dapuakande needs no introduction here in Oxford. He, he is Professor of Public International Law and Yamani Fellow at St. Peter's College. He co-directs the Oxford Institute for Ethics, Law and Armed Conflicts and the Oxford uh, Martin Programme on Human Rights for Future Generations. Now, he's a member of, and of the boards of several journals, including the American Journal of International Law and the European Journal of International Law. He is the founding editor of one of the most famous international law blog, EGU Talk, and has worked with states, non-governmental organizations, United Nations, the African Union Commissions, and the Commonwealth Secretariat on a number of several uh, issues of international law, and has been advising states uh, in numerous cases before international tribunals and national courts. He has published extensively, as you know, on topics that range from the law of armed conflict to international criminal law to the law of international organization. Well, as Dr. Stephen Humphreys is joining us from the London School of Economics, uh, where he is a, an associate professor teaching, among other subjects, public international law and international criminal law. Uh, he was formerly a research director at the International Council on Human Rights Policy in Geneva, and before that he was senior officer at the Open Society Institute's Justice Initiative in New York and Budapest. He has a very wide range of expertise spanning uh, international legal theory, climate change, the law of armed conflict and international criminal law. Um, his publications include Theatre of the Rule of Law for Cambridge University Press and Human Rights and Climate Change. Now, the discussion uh, with Sands and our guests will last for an, about another 20 minutes after that and then we will open uh, the floor to questions. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Professor Dennis Galligan will, as kindly accepts to give a few words uh, before we move to our guests. Uh, professor Galligan is a professor of social legal studies here at the University of Oxford and is a professorial fellow at Wolfson College. He is also Jean Monnet, professor of European public law at the Universidad de Estudio di Siena and visiting professor at Princeton University, but probably most importantly, he is member of the board of directors of the Foundation of Laws, Justice and Society, to which we are very grateful for uh, co-organizing the event with us today. Now, let me finally remind you that the main presentation is recorded, subject to uh, Philip's consent, uh, but the Q&A is not, so you, you should be free to ask questions later on. Um, now, without further ado, we can move on to our guest. Please join me in welcoming our guest today. Quick introduction. Well, Daniel, thank you very much. Um, uh, I've already been introduced. I had prepared some comments for tonight, but in view of the rather late start, I'll make them very brief. I'd just like to add my welcome to Professor Sands for coming tonight. I just make two comments about this book, which really is a remarkable book. If you haven't read it, uh, I urge you to. But first of all, let me say a little bit about the Foundation for Law, Justice and Society. So some years ago, probably 10 years ago now, uh, uh, someone else who's here tonight, John Adams and I, thought that there was a need in Oxford for some sort of bridge between academic research and publications on the one hand and the wider world on the other hand. So we created the Foundation for Law, Justice and Society with that end in view, namely to try to provide 
easier access to academic research based around the role of law in society, easier access to the wider world, whether the political world, the business world, lawyers, international organizations, and so on. Some of you might have even heard about the Putney debates, which we had 370 years after the original ones just two weeks ago. Anyhow, uh, I'm very pleased to be involved and to joint, work jointly with the Oxford Transitional Justice Research. Uh, we um, very much celebrate these sorts of joint occasions, particularly on a book which, in my mind, is a very good book about law in society. So let me just make two points about the book itself. I think uh, those of you who haven't read it, first of all, do go and read it. It's, it's a really a wonderful book. It's very nicely written. What struck me are two things. First of all, it's written at many different levels. And let me just identify some of those levels. It's like a sort of, you know, you keep finding another level of interest in this book. At the most general abstract, if you like, the most legal level, it explains the origins of two fundamental principles of international criminal law, crimes against humanity and genocide. It's a history of those two concepts written against the backdrop in the context of the Second World War, the systematic destruction of the Jewish and other communities and the murder of their members. It's also the story of a trial, the Nuremberg trials, in which a few of the leading German Participants were tried and found guilty and executed in some cases. It's a very moving portrait of that trial. It's also the portrait of one man condemned to death for his actions in Poland. But perhaps at the next level, going down, it's the story of two men and their families, Hirsch Lauterpacht and Raphael Lemkin. It's a memoir, indeed, of the author's own family, whose destiny was intertwined with these terrible events. So the rich tapestry of the book cannot be captured in a few words, but I recommend you read it for yourself. The second comment I make is that this is a wonderful study of law and society. It is a wonderful study of how these two concepts unknown previously, practically, emerged out of the terrible events that are described in the book. One of the main issues in law and society, indeed, is how does law change? How do new concepts and new principles emerge? Well, here is a, a really wonderful, interesting, nuanced case, case study of just that, how two concepts have become fundamental to the international legal order. And indeed, that was a very difficult, competitive, resentful sort of origin of birth against the background of those terrible events. So at that level, it's a wonderful socio-legal study. Professor Sam, thank you for the wonderful book, and thank you for coming tonight. Thank you very much for very generous uh, introductions. It's incredibly nice to be back here. I've been to Oxford many times. I've driven from my home in North London to Oxford many times. I've never before encountered two accidents on the M40. I apologize profusely 
uh, for keeping you waiting. It's really not appropriate. It also means that I, in my rush to get here by 5.30, as I said, I would be. I left my briefcase in the boot of my car uh, and left my notes in that briefcase. But there you are. I will do it on the cuff and off the hoof. And I pretty much know what I want to say because I thought in advance with the presence um, uh, of Dennis and students from different contexts and also with Stephen and Dapo, both of whom I know very well, the kind of direction I would be interested in steering the conversation and hearing from you about, as you comment, critique, question, and so on and so forth. Essentially, this is a book about identity. It's about who we are and who I am. It was a book that began entirely by accident. And what it stumbled across, in a certain sense, I don't think I can take any credit for, because I didn't set out to look for anything. Uh, the coincidences, incidents, developments, uh, points that arose came uh, almost entirely by accident, or unintentionally, if indeed that is possible. And it might be that we can discuss that. In the spring of 2010, I found myself uh, getting on with my normal life. Uh, I was teaching, I am teaching at UCL, teaching my normal classes, uh, and preparing a case which would go to court a couple of years later, uh, brought by Croatia against Serbia under the Genocide Convention, quite focused on those issues. Out of the blue, I received an invitation from a university I had never been in contact with before, and in fact, I had barely heard of before, the University of Lviv, Faculty of International Relations, because at the University of Lviv, international law is not part of the law faculty. It's treated as a different subject. On that, we can talk more. Would I come to Lviv and deliver a public lecture on the work in which I had been involved, the books I had written, and the cases I had litigated that touched on genocide and crimes against humanity. I accepted instantaneously because Lviv is also Lvov and Lemberg. And I had a dim recollection, after I checked it out, that my grandfather had been born in Lemberg in 1904, and I thought it would be interesting to learn more about the place from which my grandfather came. He, I knew roughly about his life, that he had been born in this obscure place, of which he never once talked to me or my brother, that he had then moved at some point in the middle of the First World War, in fact it turned out at the outset of the First World War, to Vienna, uh, as an Ostjuden, uh, an Eastern Jew, had lived in Vienna um, without much by way of a formal education, but had become a distiller of liqueurs, uh, and left at some point in 1939 for Paris, where he had lived for 21 years by the time I came into the world. So I knew my grandfather as a Frenchman. I sort of knew there was this obscure Viennese background, but he didn't want to talk about it, so we didn't ask any questions. What I didn't know was the hinterland going back beyond. So I accepted the invitation. Uh, I uh, asked whether I could bring my mother 
my aunt and my then 15-year-old son, thinking it was a sort of, you know, return to somewhere, uh, to go and learn really who it was we were. That was actually the project. Who am I? And I spent the summer getting on with my normal life. Uh, and as I do on the side, did bits of research, what would I talk about when I got to Lviv? And I discovered in the course of that summer, or stumbled across, it's probably more accurate, uh, two interesting coincidences. The first was that the man who had effectively put the concept of crimes against humanity into the Nuremberg Statute and made it into an international legal term of art, it pre-existed, as a sort of political term, crimes against humanity, was Herschel Autopact, who had been born in a small town outside Lemberg, Lviv, called Zhulkiev, now called Zhulkva, in the Ukraine, uh, in 1897, and moved to Lviv in 1911, and was a student at the very law faculty that had invited me to deliver this lecture. And the folks who had invited me were unaware of that fact, so I thought, well, that's really sort of pretty weird. They've invited me to talk about crimes against humanity and actually the origins in some sense are in this city. And I carried on and then I discovered that Lemkin, Raphael, who had actually invented the word genocide at the very same moment that Lauterpacht was working his magic in the autumn of 1944 had also been in Lviv and had also been a student at the law school that had invited me. And once again, the folks who invited me had been unaware that Lemkin also had been an alumnus of that university. Now, of course, Oxford, London, Cambridge, Harvard, NYU, wherever, there would be buildings named after them, there would be portraits, there would be busts, there would be you know, chairs, whatever, nothing. I arrived there with a stupendous piece of news that not only am I going to deliver a lecture on crimes against humanity and genocide, but I'm going to deliver it in the place that is the font, where, to a certain extent, there is a connection with the origins of both crimes as legal terms of art. So that was met with stupefaction, I would say, incredulity, and then a very big welcome. By the time I went back, a few months later, there were giant black and white photographs of Lauterpacht and Lemkin who had been reclaimed. And in fact, seven years on, in November of this year, there will be big festivities as we have persuaded the mayor of Lviv to honour both men by placing plaques on their buildings, the home, their homes that they occupied. They were there separately. Lauterpacht was there from 1915 to 1919. Lemkin from 1921 to 1926. Lauterpacht then went the academic route uh, to Vienna. He studied with Kelsen, did a second doctorate, then in London with Arnold McNair, uh, and then in 1937 moved to Cambridge, got the chair in international law, and was then retained uh, by the British, uh, with the assistance of McNair, to assist the United Kingdom in the war crimes effort starting in about 1942. In fact, the very day in which he attended his first meeting with the British authorities was the day his father was taken in uh, Lemberg by the Germans and the Ukrainians, although he was unaware of that fact. He left behind a very large family, uh, 70 or 80 people, all of whom, with one exception, would perish 
in the weeks after the arrival of Hans Frank, after uh, giving a big lecture at the University of Lemberg, indeed in the very room in which I would later speak, uh, on how he was going to eliminate the Jews uh, from the city, which he more or less did uh, in the period from middle of August uh, onwards uh, in 1942. Um, Lauterpach's interest is essentially traceable back to the papers and the essays and the articles and the books that he started writing in the 1920s, the fundamental place of the individual in the international legal order. And that crystallized in 1942 when he received a commission from the United States to write an academic book on an international bill of rights of man. And that really is the origins of the intellectual academic activity, I think, of modern human rights law. It was published in the summer of 1945. And it focused on the revolutionary idea of giving individuals rights under international law. This was revolutionary uh, in 1945. It did not uh, exist as an idea. And his essential rationale was to recognize that every human being uh, has inherent qualities which are worthy of protection under international law. And the focus must be not on minorities, as happened in 1919 at Versailles, but on individuals. And going in that direction, having written his, published his book in, in June of 45, uh, he received in July 1945 uh, at his home in Cambridge, Robert Jackson, whom he had come to know through Harold Lasky uh, a couple of years earlier, three years earlier. And it was he who suggested to Jackson that the Nuremberg Statute should have titles uh, in relation to Article 6 and the list of crimes to add legitimacy and public recognition uh, to the Nuremberg process. Uh, and it was he who suggested to Jackson that Article 6, Paragraph C should deal with crimes against humanity, the killing of civilians, individuals, on a very large scale. And that happened. And Lauterpacht then became uh, involved with the prosecution at Nuremberg. In parallel, and they were not in touch, indeed, I think they never actually met Lauterpacht and Lemkin, Lemkin took a very different direction. After he left Lviv University in 1926 with a doctorate in criminal law, he uh, became a public prosecutor, did a bit of teaching, then went into private practice after 1933, and by then had prepared a paper on what is now recognisable as the origins of the concept of genocide, the crime of the crimes of barbarism, barbarity and vandalism, uh, which then emerged uh, after he left uh, Poland uh, in 1939 in September when the Germans invaded, made his way north, eventually to Stockholm, where he lived for about a year, taught himself Swedish in less than four months to a sufficient proficiency to be able to teach a course in Swedish commercial law uh, within six months of arriving. I mean, pretty remarkable individual. Uh, and whilst he is there, not being an idle individual, uh, touches base with a Swedish company. No one has been able to identify the company or the individual, although there is a lot of speculation in Stockholm as to who it might be and which entity it might be, inviting that company to send to him in Stockholm all of the decrees that are published across Nazi-occupied Europe. And he spends several months gathering all of these decrees, then gets an invitation to become a visiting professor at Duke University, 
in North Carolina and travels to America, the long route, with a lot of luggage filled with bits of paper um, and arrives in uh, North Carolina uh, and basically spends the next couple of years reviewing every decree that he uh, has come across uh, and finds in these decrees a pattern of behaviour. And that pattern of behaviour has at its heart the observation that individuals are being harmed not because of their inherent qualities but because they're a member of a hated group. And international law must protect them not because of their inherent individual qualities but because they are members of a group and therefore international law should protect groups. And so the thrust of genocide is not Lauterpach's idea of the protection of individuals but Lemkin's idea the protection of groups. And these two ideas emerge at the same moment. I, I, I don't have time to get into how they worked their way into the Nuremberg trial and what happened subsequently, but essentially the year of the trial is a sort of third degree tussle between these two concepts. It's not the main issue at Nuremberg, which was very largely about the crime of aggression, war crimes and various other things, but below the surface there's this tension on these two uh, other crimes uh, taking place. By the time I've discovered all of this, of course, I think, well, I'll write a book about these three individuals. My grandfather, what happened to his family, my uh, uh, Pact, and Lemkin. And what they share in common is that in the period after August 1942, essentially their entire families are exterminated. And they're exterminated by, uh, or under the authority of, in part, the orders of Hans Frank. And so Hans Frank becomes the fourth man in the story. And it effectively becomes a double detective story, wanting to find out on the one hand what happened to my grandfather's family, since this was a matter of which he would never talk. And it's intensely personal material, as those of you who have read it will know. It relates to issues of why, as I discovered, my grandparents left Vienna separately uh, in 1939, why my grandfather left first, why his six-month-old infant, my mother, was left behind, how she got from Vienna to Paris by herself, aged one, in July 1939, and why my grandmother stayed behind for three more years to then join my grandfather in Paris by means not immediately uh, clearly knowable uh, in late 1941. So there's this very personal uh, path that I go. But in parallel with the personal path is, of course, my interest in actually what happened uh, at uh, the Nuremberg trial in relation to this tussle between Lauterpacht and Lemkin and the tussle between them and Hans Frank. Coming back to where I began, the issue is about identity. What links the two issues, of course, is my engagement at a personal level and what I happen to do in my day jobs. And the deep immersion in that period and the deep immersion in the personalities who created these two concepts, who were the architects for these two concepts, essentially goes to the question of identity. In this sense, for each and every one in us, of us in this room, we are individuals, but we are also associated with different groups. Uh, whether it is groups of nationality, ethnicity, race, colour, religion, football teams, whatever it may be, we are defined by our association with different 
groups and different associations. And so at the heart, in a sense, of the tussle between Lauterpacht and Lemkin is a much bigger issue, namely the means by which, this comes really to your issues, Dennis, that the law might operate to throw a protective embrace over people who are at risk of serious harm. Lauterpacht wanted that protective embrace to focus on the individual. Lemkin wanted the protective embrace to focus on the group because, he said, that's why people get killed, not because of their inherent qualities. And to ignore that vital factor will be to make the law less effective. Yes, says Lauterpacht, but what you will do in adopting the path of genocide as a term, as a protective mechanism, is to replace the tyranny of the state with the tyranny of the group. And this, of course, is a fundamental tension in the nature of law and, of course, in the nature of human existence. I claim no originality whatsoever in identifying those issues, addressing those issues. What I did discover was that this issue, of course, is timeless in terms of human existence. But it also cropped up in ways that were completely unexpected. For example, I discovered a letter that or, 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 uh, Hirsch Lauterpacht's son, Elie Lauterpacht, shared with me a letter that he had received from his father in the summer of 1946, whilst dealing with the loss of his entire family and preparing the closing arguments for Hartley Shawcross at the Nuremberg trial in which, in his draft, incidentally, he makes no reference to the concept of genocide, uh, and Shawcross's version, as delivered, inserts references to genocide, apparently over his objection. And Hirsch writes to Ellie and says, look, this is incredibly difficult. Um, I'm dealing with personal loss, and I'm dealing with professional challenge. What helps me to get through the day is the music of Johann Sebastian Bach and, in particular, the Matthew Passion. Okay, fine. We all have our ways of dealing with what we're dealing with. At the same time, I then discover, through the diary of a remarkable journalist, uh, R. W. Cooper of the Times of London, who, before being the Nuremberg correspondent, he was there for the entire year, had been the lawn tennis correspondent uh, for the London Times. It's sort of points of detail like that that I really love. Um, and in uh, his prison cell, um, uh, Frank has conversations with uh, R.W. Cooper, who then has further conversations with the US Army psychologist, Dr. Gustav Gilbert, Cooper work leads me to the Gilbert work. Uh, and Lemke, uh, Frank tells uh, Gilbert, at this terrible time of difficulty, summer of 1946, facing the horrors of what has happened as I realize the full extent of what has gone on, what helps me get through the day, the way in which I find solace, is to imagine that I'm listening to the music of Bach and the Matthew Passion. And in particular, I think it must be the Obama Dich. Barmadich, my God, have mercy, uh, have mercy, uh, my Lord. Now, in the Matthew Passion is a clue that I sort of 
focus on about the relationship between the individual and the group. I didn't know much about the Matthew Passion. I'd heard Matthew Passion many times. It's a, an extraordinary piece of music that I had come to love even before I stumbled across these matters. And I learnt that Bach and his librettist had been deeply influenced by a pietist tradition and in particular were part of a Protestant movement that was engaged with the question of the Catholic faith and the individual human being's relationship with God. And if you go into a deeper analysis of the Matthew Passion, which I now have, and I'm certainly not an expert, but I've read a lot about it, you can see that there is a strand of analysis which says that Bach was essentially dealing with the same issues as Lauterpacht and Lemkin, namely the individual's relationship to God as opposed to the individual's relationship to God through the group through which she or he happens to be a member. And you find that, for example, in the choruses, which are sung as ich, I, rather than wir, we. Uh, erbarme dich, erbarme dich, mein Gott. Not erbarme dich, erbarme dich, uh, unser Gott. In other words, the individual's direct connection with God. You can understand the Matthew Passion as an attack on the Catholic faith, which is how some interpret it, which helps perhaps understand how Lauterpacht was, being fluent in German, able to listen to the Matthew Passion and derive strength from what she was doing. What is more problematic is how Frank uh, dealt with it, because Frank had converted from Protestantism to Catholicism after he had tried to commit suicide uh, in the summer of 1945. So Frank is taking refuge in a piece of music that actually is sort of having a go at the set of values that he has attached himself to. But he was a highly cultured man, a highly educated man. It seems to me improbable that he was not aware uh, of what was going on at that particular moment. So the relationship between the individual and the group runs through the whole book. My tone in the book is essentially informed by my membership of the group of academics and barristers, which is not to impose my conclusions on readers. Readers are smart, readers have capacity to deal with the material and work out for themselves uh, what is uh, going on. I don't, in the end, get off the fence, really, on the struggle between the individual and the group. If I had to choose to have dinner with one rather than the other, I would undoubtedly have dinner with Lemkin. I think he would be a much more entertaining dinner companion. <laughs> but equally, in the scheme of things, Lauterpacht will have emerged as the greater scholar, plainly, and probably the greater thinker. So there is a tension in my engagement uh, with uh, the two men. It was only right at the end of the project, it's coming to a close to draw these strands together, that I came to understand that my connection with the work of these two men was not merely an intellectual one. It was not merely that my work as an academic and my work as a barrister happened to be connected to the ideas that they had generated 60 or 70 years earlier. There was also a geographic connection. And underlying the book, of course, is this question of how do such things influence us? To pull out 
two examples just to illustrate the point on which reasonable people will have different interpretations. I knew nothing about my grandfather's forebears because he never talked to me about them. It was only in taking the trip to Lviv and asking my mother whether she had any materials in relation to that period that she gave me access to two battered old briefcases in which I found a whole load of documents, including my grandfather's birth certificate. And from that, I spotted that he had a mother who was born in the small town of Zhulkiev, Zhulkva, about 25 kilometers to the north of Lembo. And uh, his mother, uh, Amalia, was born in that town uh, in 1870. I was able, in due course, to find out where she had been born and the building, or the place, doesn't exist anymore, where she had been born, and it was located on a street called Lembergerstrasse. Lembergerstrasse, the street to Lemberg, is the street that runs from east to west in Zhulkiev, and it is the street referred to as East-West Street in the writings of the wonderful writer uh, Joseph Roth uh, in small towns and villages in this part of the world. Then, as I immersed myself more into the research on Lauterpacht, I discovered that, remarkably, he too had been born in Zhulkiev, a quarter of a century after my great-grandmother. It's only a population of five or 6,000, so it's a pretty small place. And that surprised me because Lauterpacht's only child, Ellie Lauterpacht, who very sadly passed away a couple of weeks ago, some of you will have seen my obituary uh, of him in The Guardian, uh, was one of my first teachers of international law at Cambridge uh, in 1980, uh, and subsequently the person who offered me my first teaching job in the spring of 1984, when he set up a research centre for international law at Cambridge and wrote to me, I was in America for that year, would I like to apply for that position? So Ellie and I go back 35 years. We came to know each other very well from 1984, from the autumn of 1984. Uh, it was only 30 years after we had come to know each other even more, 34 years after we'd come to know each other, that we discovered that we could trace our ancestors not only to the same general part of the world, not only to the province of Galicia, not only to the urban area of Lviv, not only to the town of Lemberg, Lviv, but to the very same street in the same small town. And we were both rather thrilled by that point of connection, of which obviously we were totally unaware. And I rather liked the idea that my great-grandmother, and hence me in a certain way, had a um, rather direct geographic connection uh, with at least one side of the story that I was telling. It was only a few weeks later that I then discovered my great-grandmother having walked a first street that was the Lauterpack Street, the last street she walked was a Lemkin Street. She was transported, my great-grandmother, from Vienna to Theresienstadt in July 1942, and then taken by rail transport from Theresienstadt to Treblinka on the 23rd of September 1942. Uh, that I was able to ascertain because the Germans kept extremely good records. Uh, and I was also able to ascertain, having gone through the list of the other 999 
participants in that transport, that three of them were the sisters of Sigmund Freud, which brought me into a direct connection with the trial because one of the very few people to survive Treblinka was a man called Samuel Reisman, who gives testimony at the Nuremberg trial in which he describes seeing the moment when the Freud sisters descended from the train onto the platform. Reisman then describes what happens next. They walked with everyone else uh, along Himmelfahrtstrasse, the street to heaven, from the rail platform at Treblinka to the gas chamber. And that was where my great-grandmother perished on the 23rd of September 1942. What I then discovered was that Bella and Joseph Lemkin, Lemkin's parents, travel exactly the same route to Treblinka. Well, they ended up at the same rail platform and walked down the very same street two or three weeks later uh, after my great-grandmother walked it. So there's this sort of very curious bookending um, in a geographic sense as well as in a legal intellectual sense, um, which leaves me with a lot of questions to which I have no answers as to how it could be that I've ended up doing what I do, that I came into contact with Lauterpacht, that I wrote about Lemkin also, and the points of connection. Is it coincidence or is it something else? I sort of suspect that it is not uh, pure coincidence. I begin the book, which is in a sense a motif for the entire exercise, um, with the words of a psychoanalyst um, who I was directed to as I was exploring the way in which a grandparent and a grandchild communicates. Uh, two remarkable... Freudian psychoanalysts, Maria Torok and Nicholas Abraham, both Hungarians, who were working in the 60s and the 70s, addressing the issue of the relationship not between parent and child, but the relationship between grandparent and grandchild. And they developed a whole theory and thesis on how a grandparent communicates in a non-verbalized way information to a grandchild that skips a generation. I thought, well, that's very interesting. And I read myself into all of that and found one particular line from Abraham and Torok, what haunts are not the dead, but the gaps left within us by the secrets of others, which for me is an entree to the idea of why each of us does what we do. How can it be, coming to the broader themes that we might talk about tonight, that we've engaged in this aspect of the law, that each of us does in some different way, that um, we engage in particular ways with how law and society function and relate. And coming to a conclusion, it, it, it is, it seems to me, self-evident now, but I cannot, um, we can maybe discuss it, that the role of individuals and the role of groups is evident in relation to law's protective embrace, but it seems to be equally evident in how the law emerges and how the law is made. It's been my observation linking the different parts of my life, but in particular from the world of practice, that in preparing a case at an international tribunal, I spend an inordinate amount of time informing myself about who it is before whom I am going to appear. Or if I'm sitting as an arbitrator, who am I sitting with? Who are these people? What's their emotional baggage? What's their cultural baggage? What's their political baggage? What makes them tick? What doesn't make them tick? What do they like? What do they not like? 
And in preparing legal arguments, those who I've worked with in the room will know, I and others that I work with will spend a lot of time constructing legal arguments that are devised and intended to push certain buttons for certain key judges before whom we are appearing. And in a sense, I think that the reason that I accepted this invitation was that what I really wanted to explore at the heart of it, beyond the issue of my own sense of identity, was how issues of individual identity inform the direction that is taken in legal process. The making of the law, the development of the law, the application of the law, and the interpretation of the law. And so the issue of identity cuts through the totality of the book. It does not purport to give answers, but it does purport to say that the law is not something that is mechanically formed or applied. These two men, Lauterpacht and Lenkin, did something remarkable at a time of intense and acute personal difficulty. They could have given up, they could have turned their heads away, but they decided to put their efforts into an intellectual exercise, each of them, and do what they did. Why they did that, the factors that caused them to do that, is something I would be keen to explore as we talk. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Sands, for this a fantastic insight into your book, into your personal experience in approaching the book and into the theme of individuality that runs through it. I think there is a lot to pick up from it. So let's not uh, waste more time. I'll give the floor immediately to Dr. Stephen Humphreys, who will have five to 10 minutes to start. Of course. Um, good evening, everybody. I am, unlike Philippe, have brought my notes, but they are still on my computer. So I'll be um, sitting here uh, to speak with you. So I must say, uh, Philippe, this is, a few, this is a wonderful book, and it was a huge pleasure to read. And Philippe has the capacity to write extraordinary prose. It's very rare in our discipline. Uh, not just extraordinary, not just elegant, but incredibly readable. What is called unputdownable. Um, this morning I was actually uh, referring to a book of yours, um, Torture Team, in a uh, class on detention and armed conflict. Uh, and I had thought, will I put this actually as a set reading for the course? But you know, I don't know if I should tell this to you. I didn't want to because it's so easy to read. <laughs> we have to give our students something to work against, don't we? Um, so uh, I'm just going to make a few mm, remarks really prompted uh, by reading the book rather than uh, addressing it directly. Uh, one is uh, I mean, some of them are, I guess, personal reflections. Um, like Philippe, I've actually, and I don't know how many in the room have been. I've actually been to Lviv, 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 Lemberg um, back in 1995. Uh, I was living at the time in Budapest, as, as was mentioned. Um, I was teaching in Elta University before it became second fiddle to the Central European University. And I had an uncle who was the uh, EU head of delegation, as they called the ambassador in Kiev. Uh, so I took a train up through. Um, Bratislava, or Pozhonia, as we like to call it in, in that part of the world, up through Krakow to Warsaw, when I changed into a proper Soviet sleeper, crossed through Minsk, over to Kiev, and we went down together to uh, Lemberg. I, uh, I'll get to that in a minute, why Lemberg? Um, it's a, it's a, so the term 
faded grandeur. And in 1995, of course, it was really a city which had long past its days of glory. Um, it had an opera house. It has an opera house, a functional opera house. I'll say more about that in a moment as well. Um, so, yeah, let me, let me leave it there for a minute. Another, I guess, personal note that I share with Philippe is uh, I also call it Lemberg. And the reason for that is in uh, Budapest, I had a very good friend who was from Lemberg. And he himself was of Jewish origin who had converted to Christianity. His family had converted uh, some decades earlier uh, to be able to survive. And of course, this is a very familiar um, path to tread in Mitzelayat Open, Central Europe. Um, he was conducting PhD research into the opera house in Lemberg, and part of what he was interested in was the degree to which an opera house becomes a symbol of a certain kind of nationalism. Uh, and his research looked at how the um, tendering for construction of the opera house pitted different nationalities against one another. And of course, uh, Lemberg became a place where many different groups were vying for that national story, which um, had its cosmopolitan side, or maybe better to say its patchwork side, um, but ultimately, um, of course, had its tragic side as well. Um, I'm going to make another personal segue along these lines, which is going to appear less relevant, but I think it remains with the case. Uh, in Budapest, another uh, colleague of mine was a character called Henrikas Mitskiewicz. And I was reminded of him looking at uh, Philippe's book, because you mentioned a, a direct ancestor of his, Adam Mitskiewicz, mm. his statues in Lemberg. Um, on your account, I don't remember noticing it. Uh, Henrikas Mitskiewicz, as his name will tell you, belonged to that part of Poland, of the Polish Empire once upon a time, which subsequently became Lithuania. And of course, in Lithuania, there's a requirement that names uh, adopt a certain uh, format. Uh, Henry Kass was um, taking a case to the European Court of Human Rights at that time to see if he could return his family name uh, to himself and his, and his family. Um, now, the reason I raise both of those stories is because in each case, what you have is this, uh, well, this tapestry, to use the word that, that has been used already, of um, Central European national um, richesse, we might say. Um, and to my mind, it's this background, this part of Middle Europe, that we need to be aware of when we come to a character like Lemkin. Um, Lemkin's entire approach to genocide is informed by the sense that there is a space which is enriched by the fact that it is filled with people of different backgrounds, different traditions, different religions, different kinds of music, different clothing. Uh, and it's that richesse that he wants to, that he sees, is at risk in the Europe of um, the, the pre-war war period. And that he wants to return, that he wants to preserve, and that he sees it as the duty of the international community to work to preserve. Um, so famously, Lemkin's definition of genocide emphasizes the cultural, the linguistic, what he calls the national feeling, the religion what he calls the economic existence of the group, by which he means different peoples have different trades, different ethnicities have different trades. This is also an area of Ruthenians and Roma. Um, and he almost adds in chapter 9, as an afterthought, well, the destruction of all these things as genocide. And then he says, even the life of these groups. And you have the impression that for him, it's not really about murder. 
He will talk about murder. Murder is important. But ultimately, it's something deeper than that that he wants to capture and, and, and remember in return. Um, somebody once said about the word television, it combines Latin with Greek. No good can come of it. <laughs> um, genocide, too, at least in the, version, in, the, in the story that Lemkin tells about it, deliberately combines Latin and Greek. He prefers genos and catering. And I wondered, and you might wonder, why, why bother talking about Greek and Latin here? Both terms are Latin. You can just say genus and, and catering. Um, but actually, I think there's a good reason for this. He's not interested in the genus. He's interested in the genos, the people, the genre. And that actually matters insofar as I think the Roman genus belongs to a cosmopolitan mixed empire in which groups assimilated. The Greeks' vision is much more uh, ethnic, ethnically based and informed. Um, so I think it's right to say that Lemkin is not actually opposed to cosmopolitanism per se, but he's suspicious of it. He's opposed to assimilation, uh, to forced assimilation, of course. But he's even nervous about, I think, voluntary assimilation. You can't read chapter 9 of, of Actors Rule in Occupied Europe without a sense that at some level he's worried about people assimilating into a larger culture. Uh, and that's a kind of anti-cosmopolitanism, it seems to me. Now, of course, as you point out, he is himself a cosmopolitan. In fact, what we have in your book is a wonderful story about a number of small-town boys who make it good in the big world. They go out and become big figures, uh, and, and that's what makes it such a, a fabulous story to read. Um, it seems to me now, in retrospect, looking back at chapter 9, which is the chapter of his book in which he describes what he understands genocide to be, that it's impossible to think of this, to have made this into an international crime. The things that concerned Lemkin simply weren't translatable into an international criminal idiom. And of course, what actually happens is they're not. They're not translated into an international crime. The crime of genocide as we have it today dismisses most of what happens in chapter nine and focuses firmly on the notion of the biological or physical destruction of the group. And there's huge discussion in the Sixth Committee of the United Nations, which at the time was given the task of drawing up the convention that becomes the Genocide Convention in the early days, as to whether or not they should include cultural genocide. It was a, it was a flashpoint for a very long time. And of course, it doesn't happen. Characters such as Hartley Shawcross are, uh, or, or uh, uh, Don Dieu de Vabre are viscerally opposed. The very influential figures, the Security Council members, are opposed to anything which would um, be as vague and woolly, I think, as cultural genocide. And they're right. I don't think the law is capable of dealing with the kinds of complexity and subtlety that animated Lemkin. Um, but the problem is that we're left with a very sharply defined idea of an ethnic group that underpins the Genocide Convention. It's a reified idea of what a group is. Uh, and as you point out, that then has to take precedence over the individual. It moves in a very different direction to most of law. But the real problem with it is that to emphasize the material physicality of the group is to repeat exactly what the Nazis and the Genocidaire had done in the first place, is to replace the fluidity and diversity and subtlety of relations between multiple groups in a rich tapestry, the word is uh, uh, opposite, um, with something much firmer and more disturbing and worrisome. There are ethnicities, there are eth genos, there are groups. Um, and that's the problem, I think, well, we'll see. I think that's what may have more to say about this in you too, of course. And it's 
well-known problem that has uh, chipped up the courts dealing with genocide ever since. I think reading um, your book, you become aware, I became aware, that it's a problem that is in fact resolved partly by the category of crimes against humanity. And that this resolution is partly achieved because, as becomes abundantly clear in your book, Lauter Pact is an incredibly pragmatic person. He just wants to bring the bad guys to buck. And he wants a way that will do that as uncomplicatedly as possible. He recognizes, I think, I feel coming through your, your, your text, um, the ineffability of the problem that genocide is trying to deal with, and he reckons it's better not to get involved. Uh, crimes Against Humanity is a much more straightforward a way to address these appalling um, uh, events. Um, so, I want to sort of come in on that. I, <laughs> I think there's another thing that's going on here that needs to be put onto the table, which is Lauter Pact is a Polish Jew who's ended up at the heart of the British establishment. And what he squeezes out of his public persona from 1923 until his dying day is that background. And for me, the Lauterpachtian rejection of the concept of genocide is as much an intellectual thing as an act of self-protection and self-promotion. I'm not meaning that in a mean way. Yeah. He doesn't want to wear his origins on his sleeve. He wants to be treated as Lauterpacht the lawyer, Lauterpacht the academic, not Lauterpacht the Polish lawyer or the Polish academic or the, or the Jewish lawyer, the Jewish academic. And, and immersing myself in him, I think you're partly right, but that's not the whole story. I think there's a very personal element at play. Well, I'm going to have to respond to that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, simply insofar as, so you've associated the intellectual with the personal, uh, as though it were an intellectual choice based on a personal preference, but I think it goes a bit deeper than that again. I think that intellectual preference is based on, in fact, a quite good, a quite profound understanding uh, of how inadequate it is to speak about Polish or Jewish lawyers. It says very, very little. And he's not interested in that simplicity. He's actually a more complex thinker than that. Uh, and that problem then, excuse me, my phone is ringing. Uh, uh, it is that problem then that animates the... Um, We'll, we'll throw it open to the, to the yes. conversation. Actually, I am really glad that we opened this discussion already because it means that we are touching upon the right issues. Yeah. Um, I will actually give the floor to Dapwa Kande if he wants to intervene so we can actually combine all the issues and then have a more complete discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. I, I'll be brief so that we can let uh, we can carry on this fascinating conversation and, and open it up to, to the audience as well. I mean, first of all, let me start by congratulating Philippe. I, I do agree that it's a delightful book to read. Um, so I have recently been teaching law to a, a diverse group of people that includes mainly non-lawyers, but also includes people who are very accomplished in law. And the challenge that I've faced in doing that teaching is trying to ensure that everybody is kept engaged and involved. So those who've never studied law before and those who've, who are really accomplished in law also get something out of it. And that's a really difficult task. Those of you who are engaged in teaching will, will realize this. And I imagine that for Philippe in writing this book, you've sort of faced a similar challenge. You know that the book will be written by people who are steeped in the discipline, who know something about the characters, 
and they need to get something out of the book as well to, to appreciate it. But the book will also undoubtedly and is being read by the general public. And so trying to write something that speaks to those audiences, I can imagine, is, is a real challenge. And I think that, that you've pulled it off really well. I, I mean, you'll forgive me if I compare it to, and this is one of sort of my favorite things that I read as a child and I've returned to as an adult, to reading Asterix. <laughs> you'll forgive me, you'll forgive me. But I don't know how many people in the audience read Asterix as a child and then returned to it again as an adult. And it's like peeling away layers. I enjoyed it very much as a child, but coming back to it as an adult, there are things that I now see, which I didn't see then, and I'm enjoying it even more, actually, now that it's sort of, I peel away. And I think in a way this is, this is the same, that there are things that, you know, if you don't have the background, you will still enjoy it, but if you're steeped in it, there are layers there that you can sort of peel away and you will, you'll enjoy it. So it's, um, it's a delightful story to, to read. Um, recently, actually, I was reading the biography of Hirsch Lautpacht, written by Elie Lautpacht, who, as Philippe says, sadly passed away just a couple of weeks ago. So it's a biography of one of the central characters in, in Philippe's book. And one of the one of the interesting things in reading this book is that one gets a different sense of who Hirsch Lauterpacht is from the sense that one gets from the biography that Elie Lauterpacht wrote. You know, you get the sense of the man who is impatient, stubborn, um, and who sort of wants to, to get, get somewhere and to get something done urgently. The main thing that I really want to talk about, I... Um, is really to pick up on some of the implications of this, the central legal ideas that are reflected in, in the book, and maybe the implications of some of the ideas that are not uh, explored at length in, in the book. And that's not a criticism. I just want to, to put those two things together. So the central legal ideas that are reflected, it's right there on the front cover, genocide and crimes against humanity. And we could almost say it's sort of genocide versus crimes against humanity in, in a way. So we have these two routes to protecting rights. And there's the question that you pose and which in a sense the, the characters are posing about which of these routes should we go down? Where should we go? And we know that at Nuremberg, we went down both routes. And international criminal law today still reflects both of these things. So it wasn't necessarily a case of one concept, in a sense, winning out against the other, though the, the, the central characters here may have wanted that to happen. But we've, event, we've gone down both of these routes. And the question that that raises, of course, is the very familiar one of what are the implications of doing that, of going down both of these routes? Ought we to have gone down, for example, Lautpacht's idea, strike out all the references to genocide and just stick with crimes against humanity, or ought we to have gone down Lemkin's route? Or is it fine that we've decided to go down both of these routes? Now, as a, as a legal matter, as a purely legal matter, one can say, well, it doesn't really matter. So we have both of these uh, legal concepts embedded as crimes 
in Nuremberg and we still have them. And in a sense, we've gone down both of these routes and it's almost an either or, you know. If you've committed crimes against humanity, that's a crime, that's terrible. You'll be held individually responsible for that. If you've committed genocide, that's a crime, that's terrible. You'll be held individually responsible for that. And one, could, one might argue that, well, it doesn't really matter. We've got both, so it doesn't really matter. But, but maybe it does. Maybe actually it does matter that we've gone down both of those, both of those routes. Not so much as a, as a legal matter that's played out in the court, and maybe even there it has some implications, but more as, um, almost more in terms of in, in the general public cons conscience and consciousness, that it actually does matter. One of the things that you point out in the book is that for, for Hirsch Lauterpacht, he was very keen that these crimes have labels. I think you said it here as well. You know, that's why he came up with the expression crimes against humanity as a label which would go beyond the courtroom and which would speak to people outside, outside the courtroom. So that labeling is something which is significant. And the fact that we have these two routes um, and that these two routes have these labels which speak to a broader, a broader audience has almost maybe not inevitably, but almost certainly led to us to think about these things in terms of hierarchy. So to think about these crimes and to, to try to imagine which of these is more important. And in that sense, I suppose it would, I think it'd be fair to say Lemkin has won the day in terms of the general public perception of which of these crimes is more important. And even legally, Lemkin and the Lem, if I can just use him to represent the project of, of incorporating genocide, was able to get that crime reflected in an international convention fairly early on. We are now 70 years down the line, and though we have crimes against humanity reflected in the statute of the International Criminal Court, it took, what, 45 to 98, so it took over 50 years to get it in a, in a, in a treaty. And then we still have no convention dealing with crimes against humanity that's similar to what we have for genocide, so which imposes broader obligations, for example, of cooperation, universal jurisdiction, obligation to prosecute. We have nothing like that as yet, except that, of course, the International Law Commission is, is working on this. So in terms of hierarchy, it seems that that project by Lemkin has, has won the day. And why does that matter? Well, it, it matters in, not just in legal terms, but it matters <coughs> in terms of the public consciousness. The idea that if it's not genocide, perhaps it's not quite bad enough. Um, because genocide is the worst of the worst, and the fact that we aren't able to fit it in within genocide doesn't so much move us as much as if we are able to fit it in within genocide. I recently attended a, a meeting, actually just a month ago, exactly a month ago with some people from the US National Holocaust Memorial Museum, and they have a center for the prevention of genocide. And at this meeting, some of the people at that center were presenting their work. Um, and one of the things that they were reflecting on was, in their sense, the failures of some of their own work over the last couple of years, particularly around protection of people, the Yazidis in particular, in Syria and in, in Iraq. 
they had gone through this campaign within the U.S. of trying to persuade members of Congress and the administration that this was genocide. And they, they really put in a lot of effort into persuading them that this was genocide. And they were disappointed that even when there was finally recognition of that concept, it didn't really seem to change much. But it was curious to me that they put in all that effort to trying to work out and to persuade people that it was genocide. It wasn't sufficient to say, in their view, that these were crimes against humanity. It wasn't sufficient. They didn't think that this would be enough to mobilize the, uh, the, the relevant policymakers to actually do something about it. So they engaged in very careful legal analysis combined with a lot of political uh, lobbying to fit it into the very thing that Lemkin was trying to get to get recognized. Very briefly, just to round up, something that I think doesn't figure as prominently in the book, but which is maybe worth reflecting. It, it figures uh, a little bit in the book, and it is the crime of aggression. So it was interesting to me reading in the book, and I did not know this until I, I read it in the book, that in addition to the fact that Lauterpacht said to Robert Jackson in July of 1945, called certain crimes crimes against humanity, he also said, don't call certain crimes the crime of aggression, which is curious. That he also said that, don't call it aggression, call it something else. I think it was the crime of war or something like that. In the end, they called it crimes against peace. But interestingly, we've come back to labeling the crime the crime of aggression. But the other thing that's interesting to me about aggression is that it, in actually similar vein to the discussion that the whole book is centered around about individuals and groups, we can aggression also actually has this same tension underlying it. And we see this now. And I talk about aggression because this year, at some point, Probably the amendments to the statute of the International Criminal Court, which deal with the crime of aggression, will probably be activated either this year or sometime very, very soon. So aggression is sort of back on, back on the table. And there's a, a similar sort of tension that underlines aggression. What are we trying to protect? Some people say aggression is just about the state. It's really about stopping leaders of one state from violating the sovereignty of another. Whereas there are others who take a very different view and they say it's not so much about the state, it is a means of protecting individual rights. Aggression, if you like, is the occasion in, on, in which we see the worst violations of these rights. And in fact, the Nuremberg Tribunal said as much in, in 1946. And so aggression is something which isn't in and of itself intended to protect the state as a collective entity but something on this view, which is intended really to reflect the rights of the individual. And it's another tool to get to, to these protections that these men were debating um, back in, in the, the late 40s. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Professor Akandia. Thank you, Dr. Ramfins. I think the inputs are incredibly numerous and incredibly interesting. It's only fair to give a few minutes to Professor Sands to reply. I just beg him to take yeah, one minute. Just five one minute. minutes. No, one, minute, one minute. One minute. Let's, sure let's hear from the audience. People in the room have yeah. many other questions. Yeah. So probably we'll move on to open the discussion. Thank you and very they, much. And they want food. No, just, 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 just one minute. I mean, just to two points. I think I've reacted to Stephen's question, but just by putting a question out there. 
what actually motivates an individual like Lauterpacht or Lemkin as they are defining their crimes. We've talked about Lauterpacht. The same goes with Lemkin. You put something else on the table, which is the one group on which he never wrote, but of which he had the material. And that was the group that would have been known then as homosexuals. Okay, so that got me thinking, so, huh, that's really interesting. He's got all the material. Why isn't he writing about that? So those who have read the book will know I'm very careful. I deal with the evidence that I have. But there is some evidence to suggest that that issue was a personal issue for him, also in terms of his own sense of sexual identity and orientation. And I simply put out there in the book, and now again tonight, to what extent does his own definition of genocide and the list of groups that he identifies relate to the personal rather than the purely intellectual, political, legal. My hunch is you can't separate the two. And from my own experience as a teacher, as a practitioner, as an arbitrator, the idea that you can somehow exclude your personal baggage from these other uh, activities seems to me very improbable. Um, in relation to what Dapo has said, and I'm extremely grateful to both Stephen and Dapo for the, 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 well, not surprisingly, extremely astute comments. Audience, this is a real challenge for an academic. <laughs> this is a real, real, real challenge. So my wonderful dean at UCL, uh, Hazel Gann, uh, said, Philippe, it, it must have footnotes in it. It must have footnotes for the REF. It's got to be, it's got to be the kind, and I said, of course, don't worry, don't worry, Hazel. You know, you've given me all this slack to work on this for seven years. I'll make sure it's part of the REF. Then the publishers say, yeah, I can't have footnotes. <laughs> I can't have footnotes because any book with footnotes, sales drop by 70%. <laughs> okay, so, okay, how do you square that? So what emerges is the end note, but the really annoying end note for an academic, the end note without a number embedded in the text, mm. because that is what ordinary readers don't like. They really, really don't like it, and they won't buy the books. They literally won't buy the books. And so the, um, you know, we, we toyed with, well, what if I do and put footnotes on the web? No, that's Hazel was, no, it's got to be in the book. You've got to have 100 pages of footnotes, endnotes, whatever you call them. They've just got to be in there for the REF, okay? Okay, okay, we'll make sure that that's in there. It's also important for me that that's in there because that audience, the academic audience, is a really important audience for me. What Dapo, Stephen, many of you in this audience think about this is important. I'm very open to critique. I'm very happy to be told I've got things wrong or my interpretations are askew or whatever. That's great. That's fine. But it's got to be something that we can talk about in this room and this place. And I'm thrilled that everyone is here today. But I also care as part of a bigger project, which started with Lawless World and Torture Team, to reach another audience. There's a lot of remarkable people out there who are not lawyers, who are certainly not international lawyers, who have an absolute passion for these issues and through these subjects, and from whom I learn a lot. Amazingly, Waterstones have bought the paperback for their book of the month across the whole United Kingdom next month in April. But the condition for that was that I had to put in 10 pages of the wretched extra materials mm. at the end. I don't want to touch the book. There are some corrections that needed to be made, but they said, no, no, it's a condition of it being you know, book of the month. You've got to have these 10 extra pages at the back. So I said, well, what about if I do a little potted summary of reactions to the book, the amazing correspondence, the letters, the emails that I've had. They said, great, great, you do that. And we'll love that, we'll put that in. So I spent two days last week going through the 1,550 emails and letters that I've received that are substantive, not just 
interesting book, good book, bad book, whatever, but where they have anecdotes, people who write to me, and it is astonishing who it touches in this country and across the world. And we haven't touched on it now. Why has it, in this conversation so far, why has this book resonated? Well, in part, it, it may be that it's resonated because it tells interesting stories. It's a detective story. It's also about the hunt, how you find information, which is something as an academic and as a practitioner we're trained to do, but it's the moment that we're living in. And we need to put that on the table maybe now in the conversation. That audience was very important for me because plainly something is happening. There is an unraveling of the 1945 settlement. That is happening uh, right now. We see it all around us. And a lot of the communications that I get are in relation to that issue. So I wanted to put that on the table. A broader audience is really important for me. The academic audience is important. The judges, for example, who I spoke to yesterday, Supreme Court judges, Court of Appeal judges, High Court judges, a whole group of them who asked me to talk to them about the book, that's an important audience. But there are multitudes of audiences as there are multitudes of groups. And the other thing, just very briefly, hierarchy. There is a hierarchy. If you talk to any prosecutor at the ICTY or the ICTR or the ICC, they will tell you they are deluged by victims. Please call our crime a genocide. If President Obama calls something a genocide, it will be on page one. If President Obama calls it a war crime or crime against humanity, it won't even make it into the newspapers. It's as simple as that. Something has happened. And the question that I think we need to ask ourselves is, what is it? Is it just the magic of the word that Lemkin invented? Or is it the idea underlying the word? Is it that inherent, as E.O. Wilson, the biologist, writes, in each of us, is this sense of profound association with one or more groups. Amartya Sen has teased that out in his own writings on justice. Did Lemkin cotton on to something which, for all the idealism of Lauterpacht, we cannot get away from? I put it as a question. A biological reality <coughs> that at the end of the day, if we have to choose, most people would choose the group rather than the individual. And that is a profoundly complex conclusion to come to. It's not yet my conclusion, but plainly there is work to be done in this community as to how it is that prosecutors are besieged, that newspaper editors go crazy to label something a genocide rather than anything else. Why does that happen? I don't know. You may have ideas. Well, thank you very much. Let me, well, thank you, first of all, for sticking with the time that I gave, and I'm sorry, but uh, the time is really not in our favor tonight.